This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, experienced wealth planners and investment managers who offer unwavering support in challenging times. Visit CanDoWealth.com for more information. Hello and welcome to the edition podcast from The Spectator. Each week we look at three pieces from the magazine with the writers behind them. I'm William Moore, The Spectator's Features Editor. On this week's episode, are the markets the driving force in British politics? What can we expect from America's midterms next month? And should the Elgin Marbles be returned to Greece? First up, for his cover piece, James Forsyth writes that the Truss agenda is dead and in its place the markets now control British politics. He joins me now with Samir Keynes, Britain economics editor at The Economist. James, to start with, could you explain for our listeners what you mean when you say that the markets hold this political power in the UK? So the markets have killed off Kwasi Kwasi. They have killed off the mini budget. They have killed off Liz Truss. And the government is now in a desperate attempt to appease the markets. You know, I think what you are seeing now is that the market is dictating what can happen in British politics. And that is going to shape British politics for the rest of this decade. What the mini-budget has blown up is the idea that you can have permanent unfunded tax cuts. The challenge for Labour, I think, at the next election is it'll be much harder to say that you can comfortably borrow more to fund permanent day-to-day spending commitments. So we are now in, a, I think, a new era of fiscal conservatism where policies that the markets approve of are going to be the coin of the realm. Sumeya, what do you think of James's assessment? Do you think the market will shape British politics for the rest of the decade, that we are entering, as he just put it, a new era for fiscal conservatism? I think the the thing I would ask is whether this is truly new in terms of political rhetoric, right? So if you think back to the 2010s, George Osborne was certainly saying that, that, you know, he was mindful of the market reaction to his fiscal policies, right? We had years of fiscal consolidation based on this idea that any looser policy would be reacted to very badly. And and, and that that was a constraint on him. Thinking about that back then, there are questions about how much of that was a political device and how much of that was real. And now, essentially, the gamble that the Trust administration made was that it was it was a, a political device. It wasn't real at all in today's context. And she got that gamble wrong. <laughs> the markets reacted very badly. So now we are in a world where there are these constraints. Everyone's watching gilt markets, the currency, and, and interpreting you know, the future of, of fiscal policy from that. Do you think there's an irony that Truss and Kwarteng like to champion so much the idea of the power of the free markets, but now the Truss government has been, it seems, rather captured by the markets? Yeah, I mean, the, the free markets said, we don't like it. <laughs> and so they are now responding to that. I mean, I suppose the other thing to say is that it's not just the markets, right? I mean, essentially, there are other institutions that that the government is now respecting or or kind of acknowledging the existence of or the idea that 
they impose constraints. So specifically the Bank of England, right? Investors' reaction to the mini-budget was in part based on what they thought the Bank of England would do in response to the fiscal policy announcements. And so, you know, there are multiple actors. It's not just the government versus investors. It's you've got the Bank of England. What are they going to do with monetary policy? Are they going to raise interest rates, make everyone's mortgages more expensive if they're worried about inflation? How is the OBR going to assess what the government's doing? There are multiple actors here. And, And James, why do you think that Jeremy Hunt was the man that trust turned to in order to calm down some of these players that Samir just mentioned. I mean, you say in your piece that while he, oh, Jeremy Hunt has had a very successful career as an entrepreneur, I think he mentioned it a few times in his leadership bid in 2019, and he's, of course, been a very successful cabinet minister. He doesn't have treasury experience, and he doesn't have a particular insight into the markets. So why was why was he the man that Liz Truss turned to? Frankly, because he wasn't associated with Trustonomics. So he was able to come in as a clean skin, to play the role of a kind of grown-up in the room. I think you can exaggerate the Mario Draghi comparisons in that Mario Draghi has far more direct market and economic experience than Jeremy Hunt does. But Jeremy Hunt was able to shred the mini-budget. And he has reinvented himself, I think, in recent years as someone who is who is deferential to kind of expert opinion. So I thought it was very telling, actually, that in the House of Commons on Monday, he said, when he explained why the mini-budget had been shredded, well, I spoke to the Governor of the Bank of England, I spoke to the Debt Management Office, I spoke to Treasury Civil Servants, and they all told me, junk it, basically. And I think these are, as Ma says, these are the institutions that have been empowered by this. I think one of the great ironies of Liz Trust is that this is someone who ran during the Tory leadership against the Treasury orthodoxy. The Treasury have never been more powerful than it is today. This spending review, which is meant to conclude in terms of its central assumptions on Friday, is the institutional Treasury telling departments, this is what we've always longed for you should do, we now want you to do it. And you've got the situation where she was talking about reviewing the Bank of England's mandate, that is now out of a question. And I mean, the Bank of England is on an aggressive tear to show that there is no fiscal dominance in the UK economy, hence the fact that quantitative tightening is starting on the 1st of November. You've got the OBR, which Liz Trust basically was like, we don't need a forecast from them. The desire to put an assumption into their forecast precipitated the resignation of the Home Secretary. So I think you see all of these institutions becoming ever more powerful. And I think the point is this, is the, the central flaw of that mini-budget was it required borrowing £70 billion more than the markets had previously expected. And when they went to do that, the gilt markets were like, well, hang on a second, they took fright at the prospect of that. And I think the, the mistake that Liz Truss and Quasi Partey make is they thought, well, look, the markets, we've kept being told that the markets in 2010, as I said, were, were bulk at this or bulk at that. If the markets were prepared to lend us all this money to basically get through COVID and all this. Surely they'll lend us this money now. And they just got the market sentiment very, very badly wrong. And Samir, if, if these institutions have grown to be such a powerful force in, in politics, and we have, as James just put it, the victory of the Treasury orthodoxy, the OBR orthodoxy, the Bank of England orthodoxy, are we looking ahead to a future election whereby Labour and Conservative economic policies are looking actually very very similar, perhaps much more similar than, similar than they've been in a long time, because they are both now adhering to these various orthodoxies. 
Well, I think for, for quite a while, Labour's fiscal stance has really been constrained by whatever the Conservative fiscal stance has been, right? It's been very, very difficult for Labour to say we we will borrow more than than the Conservatives, given that essentially they've got PTSD from, from the global financial crisis. So I suppose, I, I guess I think the more important change is that that position may now be more hawkish than it than it otherwise would have been, right? I think they'll both struggle to even more so than they would have done anyway to to kind of make unfunded tax cuts for 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 day-to-day spending but in terms of what they're likely to go into the next election promising in terms of fiscal rules i i doubt we'll see a massive massive divergence and james aren't the tories in a politically almost impossible position now because if various steps need to be done, which you've just outlined on this podcast and in your piece, to calm down the markets and, and these other other players, financial players, then how does that square with with manifesto promises and promises to the electorate? If, if we have, for example, large public spending cuts coming our way, which we know are not going to be politically popular, what path is there for the Conservatives to keep both the markets happy and the electorate happy. I think the irony of the situation is this, as one factually a cabinet minister observed to me the other day, what has happened to the trust government is normally what happens to left-wing governments, right? They borrow too much money, the markets react, and therefore you have to curtail your programme. It's what happened to Francis Mitterrand in France in, in the early 1980s. But it has happened to a Tory government that was trying to borrow to cut taxes rather than a left-wing government that was trying to borrow to spend more. I actually think that in terms of the narrow political field on fiscal policy, that has traditionally been something that strengthens the Tory hand. In 2010, George Osborne exploited this, as Simaya says so eloquently, exploited this point about the, what the markets would wear and wouldn't wear to make you know any Labour policy, even if it was the most minor deviation, sound like something that would, would result in you know, guilt yields surging and dire results. I think the great irony is that you probably could have tried what Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng tried at any point in the last decade, they just picked exactly the wrong moment to attempt this experiment. And if the Tory party is to rebuild from where it is now, it will have to rebuild on the basis of fiscal conservatism. And rebuilding in this constrained space is, I actually think, easier for the Tory party than the Labour party long term. I think there are a whole bunch of very big questions about the British state and what it does and the tax burden and the demographic pressures, which I think in some ways are actually easier for centre-right parties to engage with than centre-left parties. So, Mayor, I wonder what you make of, of James's point there. Do, do you think it is easier for the Tories to, to rebuild from this situation? Or do you think a whole generation of voters will now, for quite some time, associate the Conservative Party with economic mismanagement? If you think about what's coming over the next few months, right, we've got energy bills rising. The, the government has said that it's going to revisit the energy plan for, for next April. We've got, you know, food price inflation, extraordinarily high. We've got mortgage rates rising. Uh, you know, there are, there are going to be hundreds and hundreds of thousands of households every quarter discovering that their mortgage has just become much, much more expensive than it was last time they, they took one out. That's not going to be fun at all. And and I suppose the question is, is there anything that this government can do to persuade voters that it's not their fault, right? And I'm I'm not sure there is, right? I think that is probably going to stick. And interest rates, some of the interest rate increases are not 
to do with the the government's specific actions but i i think that kind of nuance will will get lost right and that will make it very very difficult politically for this government they haven't got much room to maneuver is the point right and i think that's just going to be repeatedly demonstrated i think mean, it's totally right as, as our our boss likes to say they have put a blue rose out on every mortgage rise and that is going to be very painful for them considering that you know homeowners are and, and mortgage holders are a key part of the Tory coalition I think what is also true, though, is that you can overdo these comparisons. But the danger for Labour is that the next Labour government is like 74 to 79. But they are faced with an unpalatable choice between increasing taxes, in which case everyone says, oh, it's just Labour, they always increase your taxes, or constraining spending. I think we are, our politics got very used to the nice decade, you know, non-inflationary constant expansion. Then you had the financial crisis and... Yes, the politics were much more difficult. But actually, if you look at the Tory electoral coalition that was built on the basis of that, that was a low interest rate coalition, right? What is the key thing about the Red Wall is very high levels of home ownership, right? In in comparison to above average, there's a brilliant Duncan Robinson piece on The Economist on this very point about that actually it is that people say, oh, they've come to the Tories despite Thatcher. Actually, this is the home ownership that she was trying to create has, has spurred the political dynamics here. I think the question is, as we move back into an era of, of higher interest rates, how does that change the politics? And how does that change the politics where your your fiscal options are as constrained as they are? And again, someone's saying to me, you know, this spending review that is coming up on October the 31st, there is a very interesting question here, which is, remember that there's the famous Ken Clark radio interview in the late 90s when he's asked about the fact that Gordon Brown was sticking to his spending plans. When Ken Clark said, well, I was never planning to stick to my spending plans. They were, they were just a baseline to trap Labour in an election. How does Labour respond to a, to a set of spending plans, which I think towards the end of the forecast are going to be thoroughly unrealistic about what is politically possible? Thank you, James and Sumaya. Next, in the magazine this week, Freddie Gray looks ahead to America's midterm elections. He says the Democrats could be in for a shock. He joins me now with Amber Athey, Washington editor at Spectator World. Freddie, what should we expect from the November elections? Well, I don't know about shock. I think that what happened over the summer was that this narrative built up that the Democrats were on a winning streak, that Joe Biden was on a hot streak. He'd had these various legislative wins principally the Inflation Reduction Act, and also that the Republicans had sort of frightened America with two things. One, the overturning of Roe v. Wade, which apparently put off a lot of independents and moderates. And two, Donald Trump rearing his head and suggesting that he was definitely going to run in 2024. So it looked like the Democrats had a bit of political momentum. However, I think this was overhyped and, in fact, sort of didn't look at the fundamentals of what was going on. And the polling really suggests that the House... The House of Representatives was never really in danger. And the Senate definitely is tight in a lot of seats. But the latest polling and the way the Democrats are talking about the latest polling suggests that they are in a big state of panic and that actually this is looking like a pretty solid shellacking for the Democrats. Of course, you don't know and it's very stupid to make predictions. But the way the Democrats are talking this week leads one to think that they're very worried. Amber, even if it is very stupid to make predictions... Could you make one, please? Are the, <laughs> what's your assessment of where the Democrats stand? And are we, are we heading for a red wave? Uh, I would say that there will definitely be a red wave in the House. As Freddie mentioned, the Senate's going to be a little bit closer. But there were some 
sort of doomsday-esque predictions in the middle of the summer that the GOP was actually going to lose the Senate. And I don't think that could be any further from the truth. The polling has significantly tightened, and you have to assume that these polls typically favor Democrats to begin with. You now have Dr. Oz within two points of John Fetterman. You have Herschel Walker within the margin of error in Georgia. J.D. Vance in Ohio is performing quite well against Tim Ryan, and even Blake Masters is coming from behind pretty well in Arizona. The GOP really only needs two of those seats in order to take a majority. I think they'll at least hit 52, if not get closer to 54. So I think things are looking really good for the GOP. Summer is actually historically always kind of a lull for the Republican Party. I'm not sure exactly why that is. Some people suggest it's because families are on summer vacations and just aren't really paying attention to politics. And then as November creeps around the corner, they start looking into which candidates they're going to vote for. They start responding to polls. And that's when you see the GOP start to tick up in popularity. And Freddie mentioned just then that a lot of the media narrative has said that the the Roe versus Wade issue has been a big mobilizing factor for the Democrats, and that will lead to higher turnout than perhaps was assumed earlier in the year before the Supreme Court's announcement. Biden this week tried to rally support by saying that he will will codify abortion rights if the Democrats win in the midterms. Do you think it is right for Biden tactically to place so much emphasis on this issue? Definitely not. If you look at pretty much every poll of the issues that Americans care about, the top four issues are in this order, inflation, general economic concerns, immigration, and crime. And on every single one of those issues, voters say that they trust Republicans to handle them more than the Democrats. If Democrats are lucky, abortion comes in fifth place, but more typically it comes in around six or seven. And historically, when we look at the type of people who are single issue voters on abortion, it's actually usually pro-life people who make that their top issue, not people who are seeking to codify Roe or seeking unfettered abortion access throughout the entire United States. So the Democrats have, I don't know that they you know, severely miscalculated in so much as they're desperate because they know that those top four or five issues are going to the Republicans and they can't really talk about them without tacitly admitting that the Biden administration is responsible for a lot of the woes facing American families. Freddie, what do you make of that? Do you, do you think that the economy actually is the number one issue for the midterms, not issues such as abortion? There was a really good example today, which was Stacey Abrams, who's running for governor in Georgia, was asked about inflation and cost of living concerns. And she turned the question into an abortion question. So she said, what well, the real cost of living concern is people worrying about whether they're going to have a child which is a very, very odd line of argument that I think, unless you're a sort of pro-abortion fanatic, will strike you as very, very odd. I mean, the Democratic Party are effectively saying children are a major problem in the economy. I don't think that's a winning argument in politics. And you say in your piece that there's a lot of concern about how the Biden administration's managed the economy. And you even say that Bidenomics actually makes as little sense as Trussonomics, which we've heard a lot about in the UK this month. Could you explain what you mean to the listeners? Well, there's, there's an important caveat there, which is that because America is the most powerful economy in the world and the dollar is the reserve currency of the world, it is always, America can always be redeemed for its economic sins, if you like. But the fact is, the 
Inflation Reduction Act not only didn't do anything to reduce inflation, it actually introduced a massive another round, a sort of hangover of the Build Back Better plan from Joe Biden, another massive round of government spending, which is, of course, inflationary. So I think it will go down as one of the worst named acts in history because it was a very obviously inflationary measure at a time when the government and the Federal Reserve are desperately trying to get inflation under control. And Amber, uh, another thing uh, Freddie mentioned as an attempt by the Democratic Party to, to rally support is to focus on the, the spectre, I suppose, of Donald Trump and his possible return as a presidential candidate for the Republicans as a mobilising force to, to, to get people to come out and vote. Do you think that is an effective strategy at all? <laughs> no, it's certainly not. The whole Trump is the boogeyman, you know, constantly casting a shadow over American politics has really just run itself ragged. I mean, the Democrats have been spending the past two years focused on this January 6th committee while women in America still have a hard time finding baby formula. That's really the comparison that Americans are making right now. And this January 6th committee, when we're talking about ranking these issues in terms of importance to voters, abortion might be six. The January 6th committee is more like 17 to 20. So their priorities are completely misplaced. And it's pretty mind-blowing to see that they haven't learned the lesson of Trump as the you know big bad wolf that's going to blow the house down. Thank you, Freddie and Amber. Finally, should we return the Elgin marbles to Greece? That is a question which has been asked repeatedly over the years, and one that Noel Malcolm considers in this week's Spectator. Lord Vasey, former culture minister and chair of a new advisory board, the Parthenon Project, joins him to debate this topic. Noel, Unfortunately, we don't have time to go into the full history of the debate around the Elgin Marbles, but can you tell our listeners a little bit about your argument? Uh, it seems to me that the, the heart of your argument is that Lord Elgin was saving rather than stealing the marbles. Is that correct? Broadly, yes, I think that is a very important point. People have argued for years now about the minutiae of his legal permission that he may or may not have got from the relevant authorities, precise meaning of legal authorization that came from the Sultan in Istanbul. Well, actually several authorizations, but there's one that's particularly tricky to interpret. And the argument has been rather fixated on those points. Was he just within the bounds of Ottoman legality or not? I think that is to miss the larger and more fundamental point, which is that he was actually saving the marbles. And the basic facts here, we have known for a long time. I mean, the classic book by William Sinclair, which I refer to, it's more than, what, 60 years ago that he published that. And he set out the evidence, which is absolutely clear, that in the middle of the 18th century, you had travelers doing quite detailed drawings of what they saw on the Parthenon, the sculptures. And a great deal of that was gone by the time Elgin's agent, who was an artist, arrived there in 1800. You had 12 full figures on the West Pediment. That's the grandest bit of the whole ensemble, because that was where these almost sort of freestanding sculptures were. You had 12 in the middle of the 18th century. About 50 years later, you had four. Two had had their heads on in the 1760s, and now their heads were smashed. And plenty of people commented on this at the time. John Cam Hobhouse, who was, well, a very significant figure, but uh, is known partly for traveling around 
Greece and Albania with his friend Lord Byron, he wrote, if the progress of decay should continue to be as rapid as it has been for something more than a century past, there will in a few years be not one marble standing upon another on the site of the Parthenon. Now he was exaggerating, but but the, the, the basic rate of destruction was rather shocking. And many people, including Elgin's agent, when he sort of realized just how bad the situation was, they were shocked by it. And this information was certainly available to Elgin. And uh, I think was probably the main factor that persuaded him to move from his original plan, which was to take drawings, hence the employment of this artist, Lucieri, and to take molds and plaster casts, to move from that original plan to actually removing physical sculpture. And Ed, I, I expect you'll want to, to respond to Noel's argument there. And, and could you tell our listeners why you are in favour of returning the marbles to Athens, and perhaps why specifically the marbles rather than you know, any other artefact from the British Museum? Well, the Parthenon sculptures are a sort of integral part of the Parthenon. They're very contextual sculptures that are attached, not physically, obviously, now, but attached to a particular building. And, of course, they can never be put back onto the Parthenon as it stands today on top of the Acropolis overseeing Athens. But they can be put into a splendid museum which is adjacent to the Acropolis, called, in fact, the Acropolis Museum. The clue is in the name where the Greeks have very cleverly recreated the top of the Parthenon so that visitors could see the sculptures as it were in situ in the best situation they could be, and then can simply swivel around 180 degrees and look out of the window and see the building to which they are attached. So I think the contextual argument is very strong. I think secondly, the iconic nature of the sculptures and the Parthenon itself This is not just some routine building or an ancient temple that one might stumble upon if you're on a lovely holiday in Italy or Greece or Turkey, but, you know, really is now woven into the identity of modern Greece. And it's something that the Greeks themselves feel very passionately about. I think Noel is right that you can, first of all, the legal argument to a certain extent is a red herring. If if the Parthenon sculptures were ever to go back, there would probably be a legal transfer of ownership sort of formally recognised. I don't think they will ever go back because Greece wins some international court case against the British Museum. And I think as well that Noel is perfectly justified in saying that Lord Elgin may have played a role in saving the Parthenon sculptures from destruction at the time. I mean, we care so much more about ancient monuments and heritage than we did 200 or 300 years ago, even in this country, we were busily dismantling ancient monuments until really the late 19th century, when people started to think about actually legislation to protect them. The odd farmer would happily take stones from wherever they found a useful ancient ruin to build their dry stone walls. And I think it's an important argument to make, because I think if if and when, I hope, the Parthenon sculptures return, I think Britain's role and the role of the British Museum should be recognised. And I think the Greeks would be happy to recognise that. The reason that I'm involved in this particular campaign called the Parthenon Project, and there are several campaigns going, it's like the People's Party of Judea and the Judean People's Party, is that they do present their arguments in that context as a win-win, that if the British Museum were to return the Parthenon sculptures, the Greeks would recognise that generosity of that gesture and send iconic artefacts back to the British Museum for display 
on loan. So I think there is a, a recognition that it doesn't have to be a one-way street. I'm not saying, by the way, the Greeks would give objects to the British Museum, but they would certainly want to lend objects that they wouldn't perhaps necessarily lend to other international institutions. So I think the arguments are very powerful, and I'm sure we'll go on to debate some of the nuances, but that's my opening bid. I mean, the point that Ed made about them having the marbles having national importance for modern Greece is not negligible, but I don't see it as a, a, a sort of an argument-changing point. One hears Greeks talking about how this is sort of woven into their national identity. I mean, no historian today would talk seriously about a sort of Greek nation going back all the way to the 5th century BC. Nations are what they are on a pretty modern basis, and popular opinion may be influenced by various things that leads them to identify some things as iconic and others not. Quite a lot of Italians would identify the Mona Lisa as the most iconic work of Italian art uh, ever created, but it sits there in Paris. An Italian working for the Louvre, actually, who stole it in 1911 and took it to Florence, kept it in his apartment for a couple of years and then naively tried to sell it to the director of the Uffizi. Uh, he was obviously caught, sent to prison. He became a national hero. And that helped <laughs> up a sort of Italian nationalist view of the Mona Lisa. Now, this, I say this without regard to the precise circumstances in which Mona Lisa went to France. It was most probably taken there by Leonardo, so that's different. But, but this is just relevant to the actual point of what things are national. Things can be identified as national for various reasons. The, the modern Greek nation was founded much more on the heritage of the Greek Orthodox Church than it was of Periclean Athens. And there's a terrible irony in that, as it happens, because the biggest single act of deliberate destruction of the Parthenon was by the Orthodox Church when it turned the Parthenon into a church in the 6th century and deliberately took down and smashed all the sculptures on the other pediment, the East pediment. Uh, but that's just by the by. I can think of examples of iconic works that are desperately wanted and thought about by nations. Uh, this may not resonate with all your listeners, but for Albanians, Skanderbeg is their founding national hero of the modern Albanian nation. We have very little that survives physically from him, but we have this magnificent ornate helmet. It's, it's a fantastic work of 15th century metalwork anyway. It's been in Vienna for centuries. It appears on Albanian banknotes. Uh, it's that important for the Albanian people, but there is no serious campaign to bring that back from, from Vienna. So, I mean, you know, one can take into account people's feelings, of course, but, but, but I just think this is not a clinching argument. And then the, the point before that was about reuniting the sculptures and it was contextual. Well, as Ed says, one doesn't really reconstitute the original work of art. The original work of art was the Parthenon in its original glory with the sculptures integral parts of it. All that is over. I mean, the remaining ones were taken off very sensibly in modern times by the Greeks, and they're now in that splendid Acropolis Museum. We're never going to put things back the way they were. The, the, the Parthenon building itself is a wreck, and it was a wreck even when Elgin was there in the early 1800s. They will move, if this goes ahead, from one museum to another museum. And Ed places a great emphasis on the fact that if you stand in that museum and then turn and look out of one of those wonderful windows, you'll see the, the real thing. Well, that's very nice. But again, it doesn't seem to me to be a game-changing argument. And you think of the other rather profound issues at stake here. And I mean, he will know, having been culture minister, 
there are serious questions about what precedents are set. Every case is argued by its advocates as, oh, this one is special. But I mean, he certainly knew when he was in that job that there are very important issues there. And, and beyond those, there are deeper questions, which I just raised at the end of the article, I could say a little bit more now, about the sort of just this fundamental question of whether events in the now distant past really generate duties and rights today. I just want to ask Ed, if I, if I may, about Noel's point there about setting a precedent. Do you not see that as a concern for, for people who, are, who, who don't want the marbles to be returned, that it would set a precedent to maybe the Albanians, as, as Noel highlighted, you know, other people who want particular artefacts or works of art to return to the country of origin from museums all over the world? Well, look, I want to thank Noel, first of all, for giving me my next campaign once the Parthenon sculptures have been returned, because I gather that Albania, I was saw a friend of mine last night who'd been to Albania on holiday. I gather it's now a fantastic holiday destination. So if I can get myself out to Albania on this next campaign, then, um, this is, uh, you know, I'm going to be absolutely quids in on, on these restitution campaigns. And I think, you know, this is where we're getting to the heart of the matter. This is actually why I'm sort of fascinated by it. And you know, I do genuinely believe that the Parthenon sculptures should be returned, but I can't deny that I haven't been partly influenced by the culture wars. And I'm definitely on one side of the argument here, which is I find it very frustrating. I think that the climate has changed. You know, people ask me why I changed my mind about the Parthenon sculptures. When I was culture minister, I very much took the party line with Neil McGregor, the then director of the British Museum, that we should hold on to the Parthenon sculptures. But I think the Parthenon sculptures say quite a lot about modern Britain as well. I think that we are rightly proud, you know, the British Museum is a world museum and we are rightly proud of our custodianship of the Parthenon sculptures. But the fact that, for example, our Prime Minister can dismiss any kind of debate about returning them, I think shows a great level of immaturity and insecurity about Britain's place in the world. And what one often encounters when one has restitution debates is a uh, and I'm not uh, would never accuse Noel of this, but an element of putting one's fingers in one's ears and going la la la, we can't debate British history, we can't debate both the great parts of British history, but also the less salubrious parts of British history, and we can't ever admit that something we did was perhaps wrong, or we can't ever admit that something that we did did was right at the time, but things have changed, and things have moved on, and I think Noel is right, obviously, to challenge someone like me and say, well, where does all this end? Well, to a certain extent, these cases are, in my view, few and far between. I think the v has had nine restitution claims in the last 20 years. It has 2.7 million objects. The British Museum, by the way, is absolutely stuffed to the gills with ancient Greek sculptures, which would be perfectly worthy replacements of the Parthenon sculptures. And I think as well that we in this country, we have our own cultural identity passions. So we have the reviewing committee of the export of works of art, which is a wonderful committee to attend if you're the minister, because it's full of the great and the good. Claret is occasionally drunk. And it's like a civilised version of the generation game, where different objects are brought into view, and the combined intellects opine on whether these objects are somehow woven into British identity. And uh, I remember once waking up as the culture minister, I was about to go on a holiday and I found for the first time and luckily the last that I was trending on Twitter and I was trending on Twitter with a pop star called Kelly Clarkson 
and Kelly Clarkson had bought Jane Austen's engagement ring, the wedding ring. She bought it at auction. And I, uh, obviously, with the attention to detail for which myself and Boris Johnson are legendary famous for, had simply signed a chit which barred the export of Jane Austen's ring if an appropriate institution could match the price that Kelly Clarkson had paid for it. And sure enough, Jane Austen's museum raised the 50000 and Jane Austen's ring can now be viewed in Jane Austen's museum because it is woven in, according to the then culture minister, it is woven in to our cultural identity. So I think we are able to understand, as it were, the Greek perspective because we put in the export committee to stop the Americans buying everything. And on a much more serious level, we introduced the spoliation committee which returned looted objects that had been looted by the Nazis and had found their way into British collections. 22 objects have been returned. Again, it's not been an enormous exodus uh, of objects. And I, of course, I'm not going to compare Lord Elgin to the Nazis. That would give certain people easy headlines uh, to try and push this debate off into a, into a side hustings. But, you know, so we do recognise that objects can come into collections by certain means and are better returning from whence they came. I think, you know, there are a number of other arguments which have gone slightly out of my head as I trip over my anecdotes. But I think that, you know, that those are sort of two very powerful examples of where we're capable of taking a sophisticated and grown-up view about whether an object should be returned. And, and, and I, as I, I think sort of Noel was saying, but perhaps arguing the opposite point, you know, each case would be decided, as it were, on its merits, if I can use that phrase. It wouldn't, there wouldn't be a one-size-fits-all policy. I think there would be a review of, of certain objects where people lodged a legitimate claim. And it may be that, you know, the Albanians and the Austrians could follow our very grown-up example. I'm uh, glad you mentioned... Jane Austen's ring. No, well, that's... that's <laughs> I was going to say, I'm glad you mentioned things stolen by the Nazis, because... I've often thought it's shocking when you open a newspaper and you read about some court case in Austria where the grandchildren of a Jewish art collector are still fighting through the courts to get some wonderful painting back and they have the evidence and there's just been obstruction and it makes my blood boil with indignation. But then the contrast occurs to me. If I go to the Louvre and I look at paintings stolen from Italy by Napoleon's armies, well, I mean, I know the history. I know it was by any normal standards wrong when it happened. But my blood does not boil when I look at these things stolen around 1800. I just think time makes a difference. And at some philosophical level, one has to accept that rights and duties in these areas involving things like restitution of actual continuing things, rights and duties fade over time. And various injustices that you know, soon after they've happened, one would have said, well, we really ought to take compensatory or reparative action for these. But these fade over time. And if they didn't, I think our moral world would be completely unnavigable. We'd be walking around bumping up against the results of past injustices all the time. You know, some Cambridge college founded on the basis of money from the dissolution of the monasteries. Well, that was a a human rights abuse. I mean, innocent people were driven out of their livelihoods and thrown onto the streets and so on. I can think of one Oxbridge College, but I'm not going to start a whole campaign on this, <laughs> where we know that in the Middle Ages, land was just confiscated from the local Jews. 
But we live with this information, and it's because it was long ago. That may sound sort of oversimple and childish, but I think there is a deep philosophical reason why it is, why we do live like that. And I think that's fine. And I think, I would say all of Noel's arguments are valid, and there's no, there is no right answer. Time is important. The context in which they were taken is important. But for me, context is important. And my fundamental point, which I return to, to my earlier point, is I think it also says something about how we want to respond in what is, I think, a changing world in terms of the world of museums and artefacts about certain objects which still are a great cause of grievance to our friends, I, I would add. So that is why I think this campaign is very interesting. And I think fundamentally, the people who want to keep the Parthenon sculptures in Britain have a certain view of our country, which I think is out of date and not in keeping with what I would like our country to be. Thank you, Noel and Ed. And that's it for this week. As ever, if you enjoyed the podcast, please pick up a copy of The Spectator to read all the stories in full. I'm William Moore, and I hope you'll join me again next week.